name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So those who missed last week, um, you'll need to listen to the recording, because it's, it's what everything is based on, so it's the most important one, to talk about what is the point of all of this, what is the Spirit even, what is God's intention for it, why were we created, and what is the purpose of our living, right? So if we don't know all of these, then the rest of the spiritual life is going to be very random. So basically, if you build on a wrong foundation, if you build on a wrong foundation, it's going to fall, right? It's very simple. If you have a little block and you try and build a whole house on it, there's no point in discussing what goes inside the house because the whole house is going to completely collapse. So the, the foundation of everything has to be right. So the book that we're going to be studying together is Practical Spirituality by Father Athanasius Iskander in Canada. Um, I might be supplementing with extra side things, um, like today for example. So today I'm going through part of his introduction, but most of his introduction was we did as a separate topic last week because he kind of skims the issue of the spirit like as an assumption. So I didn't want to just assume it, I wanted to, to talk about it, of, of why the spirit, what the spirit is and why it matters. So as we said before, we said that we were created in the image and likeness of God, right? And in being created in the image and likeness of God, it means that we were created, as we said, for perfection, for holiness, and to be in relationship with Him. He didn't create us haphazardly. So if man was created in the image and likeness of God, man, because his purpose, or humans, was to be in relationship with God, always man is going to be seeking that. right? And this is why, because it is intrinsically a part of man. Spirit is in man. And so if a man doesn't seek spirituality, what usually that person will find is they have some void, they have some kind of emptiness. Which is why in spite of our world becoming atheistic, right, depression has increased, not decreased. Right? In spite of saying you can do whatever you want and nobody's going to stop you and, and nobody is stopping them, depression is actually increasing enormously. I was a pharmacist and that was like, like the number one pill practically that we were giving to across all ages, is that people are depressed. And it's because there's something in them that isn't being filled the right way, right? They're filling something, but it's not being fulfilled because it's not there. And so when Adam and Eve fell, we said that sin caused disease of the spirit. And so spiritual life, as we said, is about the life of this real thing inside of me, which is the spirit of how do I maintain its health? And how do I keep it healthy? What happens when I injure it? Because when sin entered, it deformed it. And so because of this, and we're going to have many topics on spiritual life, not just this book, it affects many things. So if I understand what the Spirit is, then I can understand what the sacraments are for. Right? So for example, if my, if my nature was distorted, right, then it needed to be renewed. This is what baptism is about. If because of sin, the Holy Spirit couldn't dwell in me, well, this is what chrismation is about. That's why I received the Holy Spirit again. If because of sin, I end up getting diseased again, well, then I need a remedy. This is what confession is for, right? So all of these things, all the sacraments, are things that are doing something to my spirit. It's something that's being done to me because of this thing that exists within me. So... We also talked about how God gave us a free will. And that free will is our tool that we were given to be able to love. Without having an option, 
I'm unable to love, right? Because it's my choice that shows what I value. If I don't have a choice, then I don't actually value anything really. I'm forced to do it, right? If, like we said, in choosing to marry one person, I'm also choosing not to marry the rest of the world, right? I've made a choice that says I've, I'm with you and I'm not with everybody else. Having that choice shows the thing that I value. So sin corrupted human nature, and so this affected even our intellect. And this is the thing that St. Paul talks about where he says the law of sin, right? The law of sin that's within me. And that's the part of me that fell, that is seeking, that is inclined towards evil, right? Or that's inclined to whatever it is that is unhealthy for me. It is why I'm going to want to self-satisfy and self-gratify regardless of whether or not it's the right thing to, to do. And so this is the conflict within us that most of us are talking about when we go to confession, right? When St. Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death, right? Because he says, I find within myself a war in my members, right? And he says that the good that I wish to do, I'm not able to do. And the evil that I wish not to do, that is what I do. Because of this old man that is within me, and that is the fallen man. And when our Lord was incarnate, He took the image and likeness that we were in, this distorted image that we had, and He fixed it, right? The, we used the example last week of St. Athanasius talking about the, the, the canvas, right, of the, of the image of Himself. So Christ, our God, was the painter, God is the painter, and He was the image. So the only way to restore the image is to have the original model in front of you that you drew, right? It can't be another person from memory trying to draw someone else, only the original painter and the original model can sit, and that was Christ. Okay, so in the Incarnation he restored it, and we'll talk about more of that in other lectures, and maybe if we do a book series on, on the Incarnation, uh, we can get into that in more details. But these things are relevant to us. So the sacraments, we need to interpret in light of these changes um, that happened. And when Christ comes, when Christ came, he taught us, what is the way that we're supposed to live? He was restoring to us, again, the knowledge of what it meant to be in His image and likeness. So our constitution is Matthew 5 through 7, right? Which is where He talks us, the Sermon on the Mount, where He goes through and, and takes us up to the mountain and delivers to us the law again, right? And He tells us, this is what you were meant to do. This is how you're supposed to live. So the issue is that the Bible tells us what we are supposed to do. But the Bible does not tell us how we are supposed to do that, right? So the Bible will say, you ought to be meek. But there isn't a step-by-step -step guide in the book saying, okay, if you want to be meek, here's how you do it. The Bible says that we ought to love our neighbor. And he gives some examples, right? The Bible obviously teaches us that we, not to, that we need to be pure. But God didn't say, okay, well, in order to be pure, here's how you start. This is phase one and then phase two. He doesn't go through that. And so this is where we have to turn to something, right, of how do we do those things. Obviously, the God, God gave us the Holy Spirit, right? But unfortunately, if our spirit is not attuned to the Holy Spirit, then how do I know whether I'm listening to the Holy Spirit or to myself, right? This becomes an obstacle. And this is where, and this is what Abuna has done in this book that is very unique, and I'm like, the English-speaking world is very appreciative of this book, um, is that we go to a specific group of people, which are the Desert Fathers, 
okay? And we don't have many English works that bring the fathers and give it to us in a, in a digestible way that says, hey, what did they say about these issues? And so the Desert Fathers are the gift of Egypt to the world. If there's something we can really pride ourselves in, from, from specifically from the Coptic Church, it is the Desert Fathers, right? Macarius, well, Antony, obviously, first and last, he's my favorite. Um, but St. Antony, St. Macarius, St. Peshoi, St. Pachomius, right? St. Dorotheos of Gaza is actually an, an Egyptian who moved to Palestine, right? St. Bar Barsanufis and John, these are all children of the Egyptian deserts. And there's, there's so many more. And the volumes that they left for us are absolutely invaluable. Because the first few centuries of the church, it was about survival, right? It was just simply to physically be able to be alive. Whereas the workshop of virtue, which is, a, is actually a monastic expression, was in the desert, right? This was the, the, the science lab, if you will, of the science, if you will, of spirituality where they said, okay, they, what, they, what they literally did was catalog the sins, they cataloged the vices, and they talked about what causes what and what leads to what and what are the remedies for these things, what works and what doesn't. If I want to acquire this virtue, what do I need in order to get there? And so most of us haven't given enough time to these books when they are absolutely like life-changing for those of us who sit and read them. And we have many of these books are on our shelf right now. We've got the Four Desert Fathers, Life of Macarius, um, Life of Antony hasn't arrived yet, but all of these things, and I'm trying to get us more, because these are the building blocks, these are the basics for us to do it. So we're going to go through some of these findings that they have throughout the book. It's not a, a conclusive book that has every single possible thing in it, but he at least goes through many very important starting chapters. And the, the goal of the monk was to say, if I'm no longer going to be able to die physically for Christ, if I'm not able to be a martyr anymore, well then how can I give him my life? And this was the emergence of monasticism, right? People started thronging around St. Anthony, they started thriving um, in that way because they said, okay, well I want to deny myself. If you're not going to kill me, I will kill myself for you because this was how I was able to show you my love. So my love was to die for you. If I can't do it in this way, I will still die for you. And so they cut themselves off. And they, were, they rallied around verses like, I bring my body under subjection, right? They talked about verses like, you have not resisted yet unto blood, right? Which St. Paul talks about. And they said, well, we are, we are going to. And in doing this, what did they do? Their spirits became alive. And in their spirits becoming alive, they were able to identify and diagnose the problems of spirituality. What are the things that make me ill spiritually and what are the things that bring me life? And so they use all sorts of imagery um, that Abuna goes through that I'm, that I'm not going to go through because I want to have a specific emphasis on this. And this is that even throughout the rest of the chapters that we're going to do together, in Christianity, unlike the trend in modern society, it is not do-it-yourself, okay? And this has to be applied under an Abba, right? It has to be applied under the spiritual Father. And so that's why today what I particularly want to talk about is discipleship. Okay, because even if you look at St. Anthony, St. Anthony didn't just walk out even though he had a calling and just say, well, God called me, I'm going to do it. St. Anthony walked out and he discipled himself to all of the elders of his village first. He went on the outskirts and sat at their feet. And it says that like a bee, St. Athanasius says, he busied himself and took the virtues of this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy. And not only did he do that, he did it in a way where they, they rejoiced in him. 
right? Like it wasn't even done in a way where they're like, oh, now you think you're so good for us because you learned this. Instead it says that these people who taught him rejoiced in him, right? They saw in him this perfection of the virtue that they have, that they were, they were proud of him as a son. Um, and so there's two aspects to discipleship. One is the Abba and the other is what I do with my will. And we're going to talk um, about those things. And so to talk about discipleship, I've given this talk before at another church, but I want to condense it today because there will probably be another talk eventually on discipleship after we go through these chapters. Because you'll need to look at discipleship from another perspective again. Um, because it will just grow deeper and deeper. So, as our, our Lord Himself said, when He was talking about self-led people, let them alone, they are blind guides. And if a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into the pit. Okay? I'm using this verse to start to say that the Lord established a system of discipleship from the beginning. Right? We talked a little bit of this on one of the Sundays when we talked about the Annunciation. Adam and Eve were not created with full knowledge. Right? They were forced to have to learn. He could have had in them born with and having 100% complete knowledge that they wouldn't have any need to be taught. But instead, our Lord wanted them to learn. Our Lord wanted to guide them and to teach them how to use their will, how to care for the thing, because it becomes of more value. And then, even when they messed that up, He didn't say, oh, well, you had the information, you didn't want it, and leave it. He didn't. Instead, He gave them the Law and the Prophets. So he gave them a visual, the prophets, right, these holy men, and he gave them a knowledge, an academic one, he gave them the written law. So that whatever style that people had, he said, okay, let me show you. I will show you what it is that you need to know. And then he invented, right, priests and judges. They didn't exist. God made them, right? He said, I'm going to give you priests and I'm going to give you judges. And their job is to teach you and to instruct you. Um, and when they fell short of their jobs, they were very severely rebuked and, and punished. So, the benefit of discipleship is A, it let me learn in a safe way, right? That I have an overseer. B, it shows me the value of community, okay? Because we need one another's experiences. My coming to the table with another person who has gone through something gives value to my own struggle because it's something that somebody has already done. It also lets you avoid a little bit of responsibility. Not completely. Um, in the sense that um, you don't bear the weight of a decision alone if you have been getting guidance with it. Right? You have somebody who is walking with you. Obviously everyone's responsible for him or herself. But in, in submitting to another person, the weight comes off because there's less fear, there's less anxiety if there's somebody that you trust who's helping you with it. And it also lets you experience love, which is something that we don't think about very much, in the sense that somebody else is denying him or herself for me, right? That somebody else is giving himself for myself. So discipleship is for everything. Christianity, marriage, childhood, adolescence, everything is discipleship. So for example, and I like to use secular examples sometimes just like to understand a spiritual thing better. Why does a person go to the gym? Right? Typically a person goes to the gym because they want to be healthy, they want to lose weight, they want to look um, in a certain way. Or if a person wants to lose weight and be muscular, how do you do it? 
So one of the motivations for discipleship is you want the end result of that thing, right? I want to be healthy. I want to lose weight. I want to look in a certain way, right? Regardless of whether these are right or wrong, I'm just saying that sometimes that will be what makes me do it. I need to want the end result. If I don't want health, why would I ever get on a treadmill, right? Like why, why like <laughs> torture myself, right, on that machine if I don't care about the end result? It just becomes a random motion, right, that has no meaning. So I'm not going to do it. And so a person who wants to lose weight is going to say, when they go to the gym, how, how do I do it? And so you need to find your source of knowledge, right? You have to be like, well, where am I going to get the knowledge of how to do this? Like, do I magically know what good health is? Someone has to transmit it to me. Somebody has to give me the idea. So for us, we have so many sources of knowledge. We have books. We have saints. We have tradition. We have the church. We have the liturgy. We have spiritual guides, not always priests. There are, there are amas of the desert too. They're not just avas of the desert. We have experts, right? We go to these people as our sources of knowledge. A secular person, when they go, they'll go to the books, they'll go to the internet, they're going to go to a personal trainer, they're going to get online, they're going to go to their friend that's fit, they're going to go to people, right? They don't just assume that they know it. If you have a two-year-old daughter that has headaches all the time and is vomiting, what do you do? Do you assume you have the knowledge? Instead, you are going to most likely go to a pediatrician. Right? You're not going to just go to anybody, you're going to go to the specialist because you now have a two-year-old that you're talking about. It's something specific. And so in choosing your guide, it's important that you choose somebody who demonstrates skill in what that person is teaching. Right? You're not going to go to a podiatrist to talk about your two-year-old's vomiting problem. You want to go to a pediatrician because that is the knowledge. And you want to go specifically to a pediatrician that you trust, right? Because if you see that there's a pediatrician who all of their kids are always sick, right? Something's wrong, right? So we, we don't want to go to that one. We want to go to the one who demonstrates this skill. And so you want to go to somebody who has experience, right? A brand new physician is different from a 15-year-old physician, Right? Even though the brand new one is fresh out of school with new knowledge, so there is credibility to them. So I'm not saying we don't go to young physicians, right? But I'm simply saying it's different from this person who's now 15 years in, who has seen case after case after case, that's developed a discernment of just being able to look at someone and be like, ah, something's not right here, right? This person's actually more sick than you thought. Or another person was like, yeah, yeah, I've seen this, don't worry, this is normal, right? They've developed that experience. Right? So you need to choose a guide that has that experience and you want to choose somebody that has received the knowledge in a good way. Right? One of the first things typically that I do, I didn't have to choose a new spiritual father <laughs> until I moved to the States, right? but when I did, my first question internally for myself was, if I choose this person as my Abba, who is his Abba? <laughs> Right? Because I want to know that that person is receiving um, from a valid source as well. That that person is somebody who's actually trained. Right? And I will want to know, where did he train? Right? Who was his spiritual father? Who raised him? Right? And this is why there's always schools of thought. Right? We, where even in this diocese, there's a certain priest, God repose his soul, um, Abu Antonis Hanin, 
um, I could see his effect on people because when I'd go from church to church, there were certain people who stood out to me. And I, and I would ask them, where are you from? Who's your father of confession? Like, oh, God reposed his soul of one Antonio's. And so then my question changed after a few months where I was like, are you from Virgin Mary? Um, because I could see the, the flavor of Abun Antonius and his, and his disciples and the people that he raised, right? Because they will, they will end up having um, that flavor in, in who they are. So we need to choose the guide properly. Now imagine if you're assigned the task of filing all the medical records at your clinic. Um, how would you go about doing this? Or just think about it for a moment. You're, you're just, you, you suddenly work at a place and they just throw you a bunch of medical records and say, file these. How are you going to go about doing this? It's going to seem like a random job. You're going to need to know things, right? And so the point is that you need a system, right? You're not going to just say, oh, well, I arranged them neatly on top of each other. Well, how are you going to find that file when you need it? Are you going to then every single time come through? These are the things that the Desert Fathers did. So somebody tried that, right? And said, that doesn't work. We tried it. it takes, it's, it's fine when you have five patients. But when you have 4,000, right? Now it's not fine, right? This system isn't going to work. So there needs to be a system. Not everything needs to be new, right? A natural place to start would be to say, what are other clinics doing, <laughs> right? I don't need like, aha, I got assigned this task, I'm going to reinvent the wheel. Why not first consult the experience of people who have already done it, right? This is the context of discipleship. What is it that the people tried? What is it that they did that worked? Um, there are ways that are tried and true. And there are ways that have been tried and true to fail, right? Like every time we tried it this way, it didn't work. So don't do it that way. And then there are other things where they say, oh, it depends on your clinic. This could work or this could work. There might be variation. And so the experience of generations has helped us to learn what we called in healthcare best practices, right? What are, what are the ways that are, are best done? Because there might be exceptions that work, but as a general thing, what are the best practices? And these are the things that we get from our spiritual guides when they are going to the spiritual sources, right? Of saying, well, what did they do? Because one of the beauties that you'll see, especially if you approach the Desert Fathers, is that in spite of everyone being away from each other, they arrived at the very same conclusions, right? Which is what's beautiful about it, because the same Holy Spirit was working in all of them. So you'll find them all having a very oneness of, of voice in how they, they say things. They might express it differently, they might disciple differently, but their end result, their end teaching, ends up being the same thing. Now imagine if you set up that system, Okay, and then a new student comes in after you and says, I would like to redo everything that you did. And how would you feel about this and how would you go about it? Imagine if some student says, oh, this, is, this is a dumb system, I'm not going to do that. Right? Most of us would be like, well, why do you think it's dumb? Right? You just got here. <laughs> like, on what basis have you made that assessment? So, a person who comes in, because, and I'm saying this because most of us are that new person, right? And we think we know how it's better, right? We're like, oh, no, 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 no. The church is backwards on that, right? With, with the youth, it's like, no, you don't get it. Like, I need to date at the age of 10 because that's going to let me meet people and it's going to let me do X, Y, and Z. Or that's for kids. Adults will do the same thing, being like, oh, no, 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 no. That doesn't make me love God more, not me, right? And they're like, for me, it's 
this and this and this and this and this. But really, you don't realize that what you're doing is trying to disrupt the system. I'm not saying you're never right. I'm just saying on what basis are you saying it? Are you coming in with a conclusion or are you asking a question? Because if you do it in the wrong way, because maybe this is the most real struggle for you right now, but you don't realize the importance of doing it in a certain way. If you don't learn addition, you won't understand multiplication, right? Multiplication is a bunch of additions. So if I want to just memorize my multiplication tables, I'll never be able to use it properly. I might be able to pay at a grocery store for my bill and calculate the tax, but I won't be able to ever be an engineer. I'll never have a building because I didn't understand it, right? So I'm going to be limited. I'm going to be very, very limited because I want to be comfortable, right? And so I can't just come randomly and challenge the system. So we need to ask who is the qualifying person who assesses if something is a good idea? Is it this new student? Who is it? Right? There needs to be somebody, like we said, that has the, the, the credible CV, if you will, as to why we're identifying him or her as the expert. So we have to ask, where do we get consensus from? And in Orthodoxy, we have three sources. right? Tradition, capital T Tradition, which is the patristics, it's the, the dogmas, it's, the, it's the, the faith, if you will. The liturgy, the liturgy is the expression of our faith and the Bible. And these three are a circle. These things feed into each other because tradition gave us the Bible, right? And yet tradition will never contradict the Bible. So all of these sources, and then the liturgy is an expression of both. In the liturgy, we express biblically what we believe, right? So all of these things are our valid sources. And so whoever the teacher is better be well-versed in those three. Because if they are not expressing those three properly, then they are not teaching you orthodoxy. They are teaching you themselves, right? And this is important for us. So choose the guide, right? So choose the source, right? But also be careful that you're not the new student coming in, um, trying to apply your view of the world on something that was already um, established. We need a system or constitution. And we need to be careful of innovation. Like the student needs to be careful of the innovation. So does the teacher. Now imagine your spouse tells you that she can't stand how friendly you are as a male with other women. What ought you to do? I hope your answer is listen to her. <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. Respect. Like, you might even say, but I'm not doing something wrong, right? Because it really, genuinely, you might not have any bad intention. And that might be the truth, okay? However, what love calls us to do is to deny my will, right? To deny my right. And this is one of the most fundamental aspects of discipleship, okay? Is that if I don't have self-denial, I won't grow. If I always try and justify why I ought to continue what I am doing, that I will not ever benefit from discipleship. And this is one of the hardest things, to be quite honest, I deal with certain times in confession, is, is the person, we have two extremes. You have the person who doesn't want to ever think and wants a bunna to decide everything um, for him or her and not use this. And then we have the person who only uses this and, can not re and rejects any thought other than his or her own. Right? I'm 
voluntarily giving my will. And the key word here is voluntarily. Okay? Because there is never supposed to be a brainwashing in discipleship. Okay? There is never supposed to be a, a hijacking of your free will. Ever. Because even God, this is why we talked about those basic aspects, even God never did that. Right? God gave us 100% free will. And so even in monasticism, this, this pledge of obedience is voluntary obedience. Right? And this is why choosing the guide is so important. Because you don't give your will to somebody who's going to use it in the wrong way or who's going to um, abuse it. So I have to be able to deny myself. Imagine if you want to start a new business of selling sponges. What do you do? And I use that example on purpose. Because many people are like, well, that's a dumb idea. And, and I might agree. I don't know. I haven't examined the market. Okay? It's because you might have a very unintelligent idea that seems to you like a wonderful idea. Okay? But it's not a good idea. It's a horrible idea. Okay? And if you don't actually get yourself to be discipled to someone, if you don't go to somebody in the business market and say, hey, this is what I want to do, someone's like, well, is there even a market for that? Like, do people care about that right now? Right? And to open your eyes to the fact that you're excited about something that might not be worth being excited about. Right? Because it's not going to actually fly. So what I'm trying to point out is that on every aspect of life, right? I can ask you a whole bunch more questions. On every aspect of life, humans are forced to learn. But for some reason, Christians think that they're good Christians by being baptized or by having read the Bible. But that's not enough. That doesn't make you a good Christian. Because you might be professing the creed, but have no idea what it means to be a Christian. Right? Imagine if I were to just like decide one day, okay, I made a decision, I'm converting, I'm a Jew. Can I just by proclamation claim to be a Jew? The Jews would reject me. Right? I'm like, how are you a Jew? You don't even know anything about Judaism. Do you know this? Do you know that? Do you know this other thing? And I'm like, well, why, why can you say that I told you I'm, I'm a Jew? It's not enough to make a proclamation, okay? It's not because you said you're a Christian because you're in a household of people who are baptized and on Sunday you enter a building that is prayed in by Christians that makes you a Christian because there's much more to it. And that's why we talked about what we did last week because there's a meaning, there's a goal, it's an identity. It's not an adjective, it's a noun, okay? It's something that is, is, is who I am, it is, is what I am. So it is, it is a noun. So, we need to have a guide and we need to combat the do-it-yourself culture, right? The do-it-yourself culture when I was young was like two rows at, at the bookstore. Now it's like a third of the store, right? Do-it-yourself everything, right? And this is the complete opposite of our Christianity. So, if you don't have a spiritual guide, you must have a spiritual guide. You must. Okay, you cannot be the blind being the blind. Even one of the, the famous sayings of the Desert Fathers was, if you see a novice climbing up to heaven, grab him by the foot and drag him down. Right, because he cannot be self-willed. So you need to choose a person who knows you, if possible, or at least that can know you and know your personality. Okay, think of St. Peter, for example. St. Peter, after he denied Christ, was depressed. He was really, really, really down. Right? So when Christ appears 
to them that night when they were fishing on one of his apparitions to them. It's very clear that Peter must have been like holding back in shade. He had he had something inside of him that he was he was sad about because he knows he's now in the presence of the person who he betrayed. He's never hasn't dealt with it. What did our Lord do? Our Lord knew him, right? I'm saying because Christ is the image of teacher, because he is the true teacher, he's the real teacher. Right? What did Christ do as a spiritual father? He pulled him aside. He knew this is on his mind. So he said, Come with me, Peter, come with me. Right? He 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 knew in his moment of weakness what he did. And he knows that Peter is probably thinking, I can't surf, right? I'm gonna forever be known as the guy who denied him. Right? I, I, I sold him out. So Judas committed suicide, I didn't do much better, but I didn't commit suicide, now how am I going to deal with this? So Christ, as somebody who knows him, knew his personality, didn't even address him in front of the group. Right? He was like, oh Peter, huh? tell us uh, what you did, I'm, I'm right here. Right? He didn't do that. He pulled him aside and said, Peter, do you love me? Why? He knows this is Peter's struggle. Right? Is that he's worried about what God thinks about his love. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Okay, feed my sheep. Right? You denied me three times, I'll ask you three times. Right? And three times he affirmed him and said, Okay, go feed my sheep. Right? He gave him what it was that he needs. But he also knows that Peter is rambunctious and he is impulsive and says whatever is on his mind. And he didn't learn his lesson. Within two seconds of having this emotional thing with God, he's like, what about that guy over there? What's going to happen to him? Right? Like he can't even focus on himself. Right away he goes back to his normal personality. Right? And Christ's like, none of your business. Right? So here he didn't thump thump. Right? Here he didn't give him a hug and be like, let me tell you. He's like, no. Like, focus on yourself, okay? We fix this. You, it's none of your business what St. John is going to do. If, it's, if he lives till the end of the world, that's between me and him. It's not, not, not for you, right? He knows his personality. He knows what distracts him. He knows these things about him. We need to find that in your spiritual guide. Somebody who can navigate through that with you, right? That can see your personality, and you need to be willing to show that personality, Right? You can't hide it and just like and keep it under under wraps. If you want proper guidance, you need to be you. Because then the guide can guide you on how to live the gospel as you are. The spiritual guide protects you from harm. There's a very, very famous story that Abu Nathanasis in Canada, because he he was my spiritual father for twenty five years. Um, he used to always tell me this story whenever I had warfare, where he would say, Okay call on God for the prayers of your spiritual father. Um, and he gave the story of a certain monk um, who the Abba sent him out of the monastery to get some work done. And the disciple was so afraid. He was like, but, he was like Abba, I'm afraid because I'm weak. I'm worried that I might sin. And he was if that happens, pray and ask, and ask God um, and just say that um, by the prayers of your father, deliver me. So he found himself in temptation and he was going to fall. So he cried out, O God of my father, deliver me. And immediately he found himself on the road on the way back to the monastery. Okay? And I know um, someone from Canada who experienced a similar thing. Where he was in a strong, um, a, a very difficult situation. And he cried out the same thing. And immediately found help come to him on the spot. He had a very, very, very close relationship with his spiritual father. So it's not just in the 4th century and 5th century that these things happened. There are many stories um, that I've heard at the feet of the monks in, in Egypt and from people um, at home that have um, experienced this. Those who have no guidance fall like leaves, but there is safety and much counsel, right, from Proverbs.
So you need to be careful not to trust yourself. Okay? This is something St. Dorotheus of Gaza says. No one is more wretched. This is a strong word. No one is more wretched. No one is more easily caught unawares than a man who has no one to guide him along the road to God. It's a very scary statement. Because we might be well-intended, but our knowledge is severely limited. And the devil will abuse your weakness and the weaknesses of others, always. That's what he loves to do. He is never going to be sympathetic to your weakness. He's going to play your weakness. And if he can synergize your weakness with the weakness of everyone around you, he will. Right? If he's like, oh, this person likes this sin and this person likes this sin, perfect. Come sit together. Right? Do these things together. And so you might be well-intended. And we'll see that. You'll see a, a, a bunch of, of well-intended things, for example. And some things, it'll be disguised as good. So one person with one struggle will get together with another person of the same struggle and say, okay, well, we will, we will help each other. Is that a good idea? On one level, yes. It is a good idea on one level. Is it dangerous? Yes. Very dangerous. Because often when it's unguided, the two will do the wrong together. And be like, oh, we fell. <laughs> right? And then suddenly we normalize the wrong together. Right? Add in a guide, and now there's a protection. Right? Even the most well-intended things um, can be... And so these are the statements of the, I just feel, I just think, I just wish, I just thought. All of these statements we make that start with those are usually wrong. Right? Like, it doesn't matter what you just thought and you just wished and you just felt. Okay? We need to conform ourselves to what's right or, right or wrong. So, if we don't ask questions, we can have problems. I know a, a young priest who's brand new, and he was all excited with a good idea. And so he wanted... He was like, oh, you know what, I'm going to revive the youth at my church. I am going to ask this one kid who's barely at church to be in charge of such and such service. That youth, I happen to know, was a staunch atheist, right? And the priest didn't know. And the kid is going because his parents want him to go. But he hates it. He hates everything about it. And he was looking for reasons to hate the church more. So imagine if he was put in charge of that service, what could happen? Right? So it was a good idea. It was a very good idea. And it is true. It is good to give our kids responsibilities. I'm not saying it was a bad idea. But I'm just saying if we don't know everything, we could, with good intentions, do a dangerous thing. So we need to not trust ourselves. You also need, because I've talked a little about the guide, these, all these points right now are about you and me, right? As those who are going to confess. Not to be ashamed to admit our weaknesses. There's a very famous story of St. Macarius, and I'm intentionally using Desert Fathers' stories because I want you guys to read the Desert Fathers because they're, they're, they are relevant. There's a story where the devil was doing his rounds at the monastery where St. Macarius the Great was. St. Macarius the Great, St. Macarius the Spirit Bearer is on the shelf. If you haven't read it, you must read it. St. Macarius is the image of desert compassion and spirituality, and, and he's, like, wonderful. So St. Macarius saw the devil, because he was spiritually attuned, and he's like, what are you doing, where are you going? He goes, oh, I'm going to visit my friend. And he considered this one monk his friend. He goes, which friend? He goes, oh, the monk that lives down there. Whatever I tell him to do, he listens. And he goes, really? And he's like, yeah, 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 he does everything. He has a struggle with this and this and this and this, so I'm going to go visit him. So he's like, oh, okay, good, have fun. So he goes, so St. Macarius obviously cares about this monk. It's one of his, his children. So after the devil leaves, the monk goes to him, and he says, so how are you? He goes, everything is great, Abba, by your prayers, thank God. He goes, the warfare is fine. He's like, yeah, no problems at all. Thanks be to God. Thank you, God. Jesus is good. Right? Nothing. Like, there's nothing coming out. 
But this is why, because why he's ashamed. He doesn't want to say, oh yeah, I, I struggle with this and this and this and this. When you have a, an experienced elder, what does he do? What does Saint Macarius say to him? He's like, well, this is weird because I saw the devil, right? And like, and showing him a spiritual, he says, oh, so you don't struggle with this? No, 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 Abba, I'm fine. And he's like, oh, I do. And he goes, I actually, I struggle with this and this and this and this. And he goes, oh, well, sometimes I do too, <laughs> right? And he goes, oh, and I sometimes struggle with this. And the monk's like, yeah, I do that too. And like a skilled physician, St. Macarius drew out of him all of the issues that he was. And he goes, but you know what? When I have that struggle, here's what I do. I deal with it by doing this, and I do this, and I do this, right? A few days later, the devil comes back looking angry. And he goes, how did it go? <laughs> and he says, I hate him. He hates me now. He used to listen to everything I say, and now he doesn't listen, right? So we need to not be afraid to say what's wrong, because if I don't give the disease... I won't get the remedy, right? So you need a skilled physician, but you also need to reveal the illnesses. Like we said, the denying the will. St. Dorothea of Gaza says the will is a brass wall standing between God and man. Because the will is either the tool for the deepest love or the deepest division, depending on how I use it, right? I have to be ready to deny my will. How on earth will you know God's will through the voice even of your Abba if all you can hear is you, right? Because if you're putting up a wall, then the only person you're listening to is yourself. I will not do that. I will not do this. I am not going to do that exercise. I will not take that advice. Hey, khalas, how are you going to grow? So be it. God will honor your will. But if you don't deny your will, you can't grow. It will also protect you from the deceit of the devil, right? From the devil disguising himself as something good, okay? Because we see, and I used this in one of the sermons before, but I'm going to use it again because it's relevant here, the way that two different monks dealt with the same temptation, right? So you have one monk who's in his cell, and an angel appears to him, in one of the accounts, even as Christ himself, and others it's just as an angel or as a saint, and says, Blessed are you, holy monk, for you have found favor with God, just like the Annunciation, right? And God has sent me to comfort you and to be with you because of your trials and how good you are, etc., etc., etc. And the monk, with all humility, looks at him and just says, I think you got the wrong cell. The, the holy monk is actually the one who's in the cell <laughs> over there. I think he was supposed to be sent to him. And he wasn't joking. He really didn't see himself as anything, right? And so the devil vanished from his humility. Why? He's been trained well. He wasn't trained to think like, oh, good, when you do these things, an angel is going to appear to you and like you're, be excited, right? He was trained to not assume worthiness, to not assume that he is all of that. Versus another person, right, who is self-willed, and does something. So the other story that's very, very famous is the monk who the angel appeared to and said all the same stuff. And he goes, oh, cool. Went to his Abba and he goes, you know what? Angels are coming to me. And I was like, that's not from God. And he says, ah, my Abba's jealous. My Abba hasn't arrived at where I am. My Abba doesn't understand the depth of my spirituality. And so what does he do? Kept it secret. And so he no longer had a father that could protect him because he divorced himself from it because he wanted to gratify his ego. I'm going to read you a quote from St. Dorotheus on this. He says, if a man proposes to do something, 
Okay? He inquires whether it is profitable before he forms an opinion on whether or not it is the enemy who suggests it, on whether he keeps to what he hears or not. He asks someone else and listens to what those who have to share his life have to say about it. The very sound, the mere, the mere echo of such discourse the devil hates and flees away from. Because the devil knows that his malice, malice is brought to light through this inquiry and discussion about the advantage of doing a thing. And there is nothing he hates and fears so much as to be known. Because then he finds himself unable to lay snares as he wishes. In modern English, the devil is laying traps, right? And he's covering them. So when you go to consult, this is the imagery that, that the devil, fathers use. It's like a scorpion under a rock. When you talk about it, when you take that, you're taking the rock and you're exposing it. You're like, oh, there was a scorpion there. Whereas if I didn't reveal it, I didn't know. And now I'm in danger and I didn't even know. Right? And then the devil flees. It will also give you a pair of outside eyes. For when the devil looks at a man who sincerely desires not to sin, he is not so unintelligent as to suggest to him, as he would to a hardened sinner, that he go and commit fornication or go and steal. He knows we do not want that, and he does not set out to tell us something we do not want to hear. But he finds out that little bit of self-will or self-righteousness, and through that, with the appearance of well-doing, he will do his harm. Okay? So what Dorotheus is saying here is that what the devil is going to do to you is he's not going to come to you with something you don't want. Right? If you're not somebody who's angry and violent, he's not going to be like, oh, come here, and go kill that guy. Because you're going to right away be like, no. Right? Instead, he'll say, where is this person's will? What is the thing that he likes? What is his vice that he wants to keep all veiled up? I'm going to give him that. I have my own story with this, with, with one of the nurses who wrote the, the book that we're using, where I remember going to him one time when I was in college, and I said to him, I, I don't get it. And I was laughing. I'm like, the devil is so dumb. And I'm like, he was like tempting me, and I was in pharmacy school at the time, and he was like, he's tempting me with cigarettes. And I'm like, what a lame temptation. I'm not interested in cigarettes. And I'm like, I'm in healthcare. Like, I know how bad that is. Right? And so Abuna looked at me and I thought he was going to laugh. He'd be like, oh yeah, that devil. Right? And instead he looked at me with such seriousness and he goes, don't provoke him. And I was very taken aback. He goes, don't provoke him. Who do you think you are? Right? Do you think you are more wise than the devil? Do you have more experience than the devil? He was like, this is probably a warm-up. He's like, he has something much bigger planned for you to fall. And as was always the case, Abuna was right, and within two weeks I had fallen very hard with another thing because of my arrogance and my pride, right, and not understanding how the devil works, right? The guide, this outside eyes can reveal these things to you. They can show you these things. They can show you these things that are masquerading. Because the devil's way, just as St. Dorotheus said right here, the devil's way is always going to be to take something true, take something good, take something that you want, and to distort it, right? The first temptation in the garden. He used truth mixed with a small but important lie, right? He said, if you eat of this, you will be like God. If you eat from this, you're going to know stuff. Those were true things. And when you eat from this, you're not going to fall down dead. That was also true. And he was like, the problem is God is going to be jealous of you. Right? God doesn't want you to be like him. This is, this is why he doesn't want you to eat. So he put three true statements right, with one lie right, so that he could pitch it to you, so he can, he can sell it to you. Right? They believed that lie and it was game over. 
right? It wasn't true. And if they were rational, they wouldn't have thought, oh, God is jealous of me, because God is one who gave them the intellect, right? If he was really so scared of them having an intellect, then why did he even give it to them? But they weren't, they weren't there yet. So, sorry that it took so long. I'm going to end there. We can talk about this, um, all of this on another time, because there's much more to discipleship than what we talk about here. There are books and books and books about this. But your homework, if you don't have an Abba, you must start investing in finding one. Okay, it is imperative. If you are self-guided, you will not succeed. You must have um, an Abba. Do not throw away yourself like a worthless vessel, is what St. Dorothea says. Is be clay and don't be a worthless piece of clay. Right? Have somebody who is molding you. That's your identity, but that's helping shape you. That's helping you um, shine as you will. Have faith and submission that God will and does care about you and will speak through them, and your other homework is to read chapter one of the book for next Saturday, God willing. Any questions or comments? Okay. Glory be to God forever and ever.